It is good to be with you this morning, to be able to worship together. So very thankful for this local expression of the Bride of Christ. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open them to Hebrews chapter 10. If you do not have a Bible this morning and there's one around you, maybe underneath the seat in front of you or beside you, we refer to those as our pew Bibles, and you can find this passage on page 946 of the pew Bible. 946. So this is Hebrews chapter 10 as we continue through our sermon series through, through the letter to the Hebrews. This morning we are looking at verses 1 through 18. Please follow along as I read from God's word. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would there not have ceased to be offered, would there not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleaned, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Hear the word of the Lord. As we have worked through this letter, 
to the Hebrews, there has been much repetition throughout this letter. Uh, A good question maybe to pose is how many times and in how many ways can the author of this particular letter make plain the superiority of Jesus? In a sense, Hebrews is a a constant retelling of a single theme described in a lot of different ways. So we, probably several weeks back, referenced the gospel being like a diamond with so many different facets. And we could spend, we will spend all of eternity just continuing to gaze upon the beauty of God's work through his son. Just keep, keep looking at different angles of that beautiful diamond Similarly, in this book of Hebrews, this has been the theme. Jesus is better. And throughout the letter, we've seen from all different angles and different topics and themes, his superiority. Jesus is better. So evidently, we need to hear this more than once. We need to see this beauty, beautiful reality emphasized repeatedly. Who Jesus is what he has done, and what he is even doing right now at the right hand of the Father. All that, he is, all that he is, all that he's done, is infinitely superior than everything that preceded him in the Old Testament. And that's really where the author has really been honing in, was the, the Old Covenant, all that happened with the sacrificial system, the Levitical priesthood, and, and through really, almost at times, it seems painstakingly going into the details of their office and duty and all the ceremonies, it is constantly to point to the reality. So the way this, this, this passage begins is, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, and readers of the letter and us today, please don't miss this, The shadow is pointing to the substance, the reality, which is Christ Jesus. So everything that preceded him was pointing towards his coming. And just by way of reminder, the repetition is obviously something that we need. In his coming, Jesus has made a single sacrifice. If if you did not or do not catch anything else, The title of the sermon, A Single Sacrifice. The contrast to the Levitical priesthood, which we will see in a moment, is the repetition. The single sacrifice for our sins was made finally and forever, which established the new covenant in his blood. A covenant where those who repent... Please hear even today, if you repent of your sins and believe upon Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will be saved. This is what he has made available to rebels like us. Because of his person and work, when I say person, his life, who he is, the God-man, fully God, fully human, lived a perfect, sinless life. A life that none of us could live. Perfectly obeying the Father. Every command perfectly fulfilled. Where we have all fallen short of the glory of God, Christ perfectly obeyed his Father. And then he died a death that we, because of our sins, all deserve to die. And if you die outside of salvation in Christ, you will die in your sins. 
which means very clearly eternal separation from God in hell. That is what all of us, the wages of sin is death. That's what all of us deserve. But in the new covenant, God has made a way through his son for sinners like us, rebels who were once far from him, to repent and believe and receive him by faith and be brought near to the Father. Our sins washed clean and the gift of eternal life. All of that is what the author has been driving at again and again. Our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. In this new covenant, we hear a passage of it in chapter 10. If you missed it, the author's quoting in verses 15 through 17, Jeremiah 31, describing the new covenant. And he highlights two features of the new covenant. Where once the law was external, written on stone, in the new covenant, God is going to write his law onto our minds and our hearts. So where once we had a heart of stone that want nothing to do with God, we wanted to rule and reign our own little kingdom. By grace, through faith in Christ, God, in the, the act of saving and regenerating the new birth, he takes our heart of stone out and gives us a heart of flesh that actually beats for him. So when you hear the new covenant, the law of God will be written on your minds and on your hearts where once you were hostile to God and wanted nothing to do with him and his, his commands, in Christ, this is the transformation that is only possible through the work and power of God upon a sinner's life, where once you were hostile and rebellious, you are actually now in love with the one who has saved you. You actually want to now please a father who once you ran from, we were by nature children of wrath, at enmity with God. But because of the new covenant, we are, we are in union with his son. And Christ, his, his desire was to obey the will of the father. And now we as adopted sons and daughters of the great high king have hearts that actually want to do that. If you have never heard of salvation being a miracle, it is a miracle, a supernatural work upon a sinner's life that could not happen otherwise. That is the new covenant, and that is what the author is driving at. Jesus is better. And you may ask, well, why, why is he driving home this reality of Jesus being better? Because the the original audience, the recipients of this letter, were struggling. Many were Hebrew uh, Christians who, where, where they find themselves, are still tempted to go back to the old ways of Judaism. All around them, what they see at this time is their life filled with persecution and hardship because they are but just a small little remnant called uh, believers called part of the way Christians, while looking around, they're seeing their, their fellow Jews still experiencing the sacrificial system, the temple, which was beautiful, and all the, the, the glitter and, and glow of what they once experienced, and now 
making profession in Christ and, and leaving the old covenant and being part of the new, they were tempted to go back. Because when we, when we live this life according to the flesh or according to what we see, we can so quickly be prone to wander doing what's right in our own eyes. If we observe that things are happening better for others who maybe aren't Christians and they seem to be flourishing and prospering, we can be tempted to think, well, maybe what we have really isn't that good. Maybe this isn't all that it was cracked up to be, like what the apostles were preaching to us and now what we're experiencing, this is hard. And the author is saying, Jesus is so much better. Even when your eyes deceive you, Jesus is so much better. Don't leave the substance to go back to the shadow. And so that's really verses one through four, the first part of our passage. The author is, is helping them see from the law, from the, the old covenant, both positive and negative. The positive light on the old was that it was a shadow of the good things to come. We're not saying that the old covenant was bad. The sacrificial system was bad. No, no, no. It was a shadow of the good things that were coming. It was always to be pointing, a big sign saying the repetition, all that you're seeing and experiencing, the, the, the physical interaction of, of seeing blood shed of animals over and over and over again was a shadow of the good things to come. The ultimate one-time, once-and-for-all sacrifice of the Messiah. Verses 1 through 4 points to both the positive light of the law, but then also the negative. The law is not the reality in and of itself. It is a sign pointing. It is a shadow pointing to substance. If a sacrifice for sin was perfect and could finally and forever cleanse the human heart of guilt and condemnation, here's what he's trying to say, it then would not have to be repeated again and again and again. The inadequacy of the Old Testament sacrifices was that they never fully and finally cleansed the human conscience of guilt and shame. And this through verses one through four, he's really pointing to the day of atonement, that yearly time where they would gather and the, the high priest would go and make the atonement for sins. And it was, it was a big deal. It reminded the people, verse three, to remember their sin. This is also really important to hear. It not only reminded the people of their sin, it reminded God of their sin. So this is the weight of the Day of Atonement. Every year, year after year, the people were reminded of their sin. Now, why would you want to place yourself under the authority of the shadow when God invites you to experience the substance in his son. We've seen this through Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, we, we heard, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, for, uh, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since 
He did this once for all when he offered up himself. And then in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. When something is done perfectly, there then is no need for repetition. So then transitioning into verses 5 through 7. It's interesting, if you have your Bibles open, the author in verses 5 through 7 goes and quotes Psalm 40. So, verses 5 through 7, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Psalm 40 is one of several Old Testament texts affirming that what God seeks from his people is not a sacrificial slaughter of animals, but loyalty, integrity, mercy, and obedience. Many of us fall prey to this. As long as I just do these things that look very religious, then I'm good with God. So if I can just check off the boxes of things to do, it doesn't really matter what's going on on the inside. On the outside, my life seems put together. That seems pretty good. And really the heart of what God is saying here when he's saying it's not about the sacrifices, it's about obedience of heart. It's what's going on inside that matters. You can be all about a good, good life of good deeds and yet be like the Pharisees, which were like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they looked very clean. And Jesus, again and again, just went right to the heart and exposed that on the inside, they were dead. So when we see him go to Psalm 40, it's, it's really interesting. In verses 5 through 7, when he's quoting this psalm, the author views this psalm in a much wider perspective really as a timeline of redemptive history in the life of Christ. If you just go back and read Psalm 40, some of us would not even see what was going on there, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, the new interpreting the old, listen to how Psalm 40 verse 6 goes, and then listen to how the author in verse 5 goes and quotes it. So in, in Psalm 40, verse 6, if you don't have your Bibles open, in sacrifice and offerings you have not delighted, listen to what it says, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Hebrews 5, the author says, consequently when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. I want to submit to you this morning, this is not the author of the letter to the Hebrews playing fast and loose with the Old Testament. It is him actually giving a deepened understanding of the Old Testament. It is not untrue to the Hebrew original in, in Psalm 40 verse 6, um, God provided the psalmist with open ears given me an ear to hear with open ears to hear his word and obey. God has given him an ear 
which would represent a, 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 a person who has heard and obeys God. In the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament in Greek, it says that you have given me an obedient body. So if anything, it's moving towards a more, more holistic understanding of what it means to listen and obey. It's not just something goes in your ear and then you might obey just a little bit over here, but you have given me a body, mind, soul, strength, everything to hear your word and obey. And then in Hebrews, we hear that Christ says, you have given me a body. The one who came into the world. Why did Jesus have to be given a body to obey? There's a children's catechism based on the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's question 47. It says, this is the question, how could the Son of God suffer? The answer, Christ, the Son of God, became man that he might obey and suffer in our nature. So why did Jesus have to be given a body to obey? The eternal Son of God became man that he might obey and suffer in our nature. So there is this question that emerges of why animal sacrifices cannot atone for human sinners. Look at verse 4 of our passage. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The author has already answered in chapter 2 of Hebrews. I want to read you verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Some, maybe even in this room, have a very low view of sin. Here we get a description that sin is bondage. Outside of Christ, you need to understand this, you are enslaved to sin. Martin Luther wrote a book, The Bondage of the Will, helping us understand from God's word what it actually means to be enslaved to sin and what Christ offers to, to liberate sinners from that captivity. The work of Christ on the cross allows sinners who were once enslaved to the fear of death to be free. There is freedom in Christ. When you hear that freedom in Christ, it is not to just go and live however you feel like, however you think is best, it's going to bring the most happiness to your life. Not at all. Freedom in Christ means you were once in bondage, dead in your trespasses, and only by sovereign grace can one who is in this type of slavery be redeemed, be ransomed, be free from it. That is what Christ has done on the cross. He needed a body in order to fulfill God's will. He says, behold, I have come to do your will. 
That's verse 7. He came to obey the Father. So just hear from Scripture. From Christ's own words, Jesus said to them in John chapter 4, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And what was the will of the Father? In Psalm 40, we, we hear that there is obedience to his word. And so it is right to say, what was the will of the Father for the Son? It was to obey the moral commands of God. But it was also one additional aspect of, of obedience that was unique to him. And again, going to the Gospel of John, John chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then verses 17 and 18, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father, to lay down my life for the sheep. And so why did Jesus come into the world? Why did he need a body throughout the New Testament to destroy the work of the devil? 1 John 3.8, to save the world, not to condemn the world, John 3.17. In this is love, 1 John 4.10. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Mark 10.45. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, to save sinners. In 1 John chapter 3, to take away sin. Matthew 5, Christ came to fulfill the law. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Christ needed a body becoming flesh in order to fulfill all that, the God, that God had for him to do, to obey the Father. Now looking at verse 8, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we will, we, uh, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So verses 8 through 11, same argument being made by the author, but of a different sort. So in verses 1 through 4, thinking about the Day of Atonement, it was the high priest once a year who would make sacrifices and atone for the sins of the people. Here in verses 8 through 11, in verse 11 in particular, the argument changes to day to day. The, the, the priest who ministered day in, day out. There were morning sacrifices, there were evening sacrifices made by the priests. It's almost like he's, he's trying to even drive home the, the, the point even further. 
If every year that was quite a bit of repetition for you, think about daily. Remember daily, morning and evening, the need for for sacrifices of, of all different kinds. He lists them. There's all these different kinds of sacrifices, all of that but a shadow pointing to the good things that were to come. You should have known all along, by repetition, that there was one who would come, who once and for all would make a one-time sacrifice. Look at verse 9. When Jesus came in fulfillment of God's will, he did away with the first system in which sacrifices were, were offered repeatedly and in its place established a second and superior way to atone for sin. And if you have not caught it by now, it is by the offering of himself, the blood that Jesus himself shed on the cross. The main plan for God's redemption was always Jesus Christ. Jesus came and did the will of the Father, a life of obedience that makes his sacrifice acceptable to God. And and please hear this, a sacrifice in which God the Father would be permanently pleased. Permanently. Once for all time is one of the most important phrases in Hebrews. And you hear it throughout this passage. For all time. Listen to verses 12 through 14. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He introduces something very significant in verse 12. The consideration is that the Levitical priests would stand. Their work, day in and day out, requires them to remain standing. This was was supposed to really make a mark in in the, the, the Israelites' minds of the repetition, the need for it to be ongoing. As long as they were standing, your sins were never washed away. The guilt, the shame, the conscience that was not clean, that, that remained as long as they stood. So when we get to ch- verse 12, and you hear that when he, Christ, offered for all time a single sacrifice, him sitting down is hugely important. It represents so much. They stood, which would remind the people that it needs to continue. Christ sat down. It has been completed. What he offered was sufficient to wipe away sins and to bring a people unto himself. His work is done. So, by him sitting down, his priestly work, the the sacrificial dimension, came to an end. For all time, there's no need to repeat John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, Christ speaking to the Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. John 19, 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, 
This is on the cross of Calvary. He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. His work is done. He does not stand daily to offer sacrifices for sins. The one sacrifice of himself was perfectly complete. The sitting down also means that God was satisfied with the sacrifice. God honors Christ with the seat at his right hand to show that he is satisfied with the debt paid for sin. I hope that this is a great picture to encourage us who are in Christ to remember that our sins have been fully dealt with. The sitting down means that Christ has been put in a place of honor. The Father has said, it is satisfied. My wrath, you have propitiated. You have satisfied my wrath that is due unto these sinners who find hope in you. Now, as our high priest, does that mean he is now inactive? So if the priests were standing and they're moving and active, by him seating, does that by him sitting down, does that mean that he is now inactive? It's a good question. And, and another question, what is Christ then doing if he's not inactive? And Hebrews throughout this letter has helped us. As our great high priest, yes, the work of his sacrifice is done fully and finally, but also as a high priest in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he, our great high priest right now, is able to help those who are being tempted. In chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, we hear that he sympathizes with us, and we draw near to receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That is present, that is now for believers. And then Hebrews 7, 25, he is interceding for the saints. And in chapter 9, verse 24, now to appear before God for us on our behalf. What is also introduced in verse 12 is, is a shift from the author, from the priestly work or office of Christ to the kingly work or office of Christ. And this should hearken us back to Psalm 110. Do you remember when we read through Hebrews that he was from the order of Melchizedek? And that was rooted in first in Genesis, the first time that Melchizedek comes on the scene, then in Psalm 110. And in Psalm 110, we see this wedding of priest and king. And so in verse 12, it brings together both the priestly office of Christ and his kingly rule. Christ, together with the Father, is the sovereign ruler over all his enemies. They will be defeated. That's, what stress, that's what's being stressed in verse 13. He is waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. In other words, everything Christ died to accomplish will be accomplished. No enemy can hinder his work in the end. The, atone, the atonement of Christ was wholly complete. The Father was totally satisfied. And all the enemies will fall absolutely 
before the reigning Christ in heaven? Here's also a good question to think about. When did Jesus get enthroned at the right hand of God? The Bible tells us the ascension. So he died on the cross. Three days later, God raised him from the dead. He was resurrected. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. So that has some really important implications when we read verses 12 and 13. Jesus has been reigning since his ascension. And his reign continues today as he currently is putting all things under his feet. So this means we are not waiting for Jesus to commence his reign. This is very important. Rather, we await only the consummation of his rule. Christ is currently on his throne right now. And history proceeds according to his perfect plan. Now, again, when we are trusting in our eyes and in our ears of what we're hearing and seeing all around us, this leads many to doubt the rule and reign of Christ right now. Brothers and sisters, do not trust your eyes. Christ is ruling at the right hand of the Father. If maybe you're here today and you have been burdened and discouraged by the onslaught of the LGBTQ ideology that seems to be so invasive, coming from us from every angle of our society, if you are discouraged, feeling like it is overwhelming us and our society, hear from William Plummer, an old Presbyterian pastor in the 1800s. He speaks to us, it is applicable today in relation to our passage. We need not fear our foes. They are all Christ's enemies and he will subdue every one of them. Men who wickedly refuse to be trophies of his grace and would insult him and again crown him with thorns shall be dashed to pieces like potter's vessels. Wicked angels who hate his person and oppose the progress of his kingdom shall at least sincerely, though reluctantly, confess that war on the Lamb is a failure. Yea, the whole powers of wickedness shall be overthrown, and sin and death and hell shall be cast into the lake of fire. He then, William Plummer, goes on to quote an older dead guy, John Owen, by saying this, It is the foundation of all consolation to the church, it is the foundation of all consolation to the church that the Lord Jesus Christ, even now in heaven, takes all of our enemies to be his, and whose destruction he has infinitely more concern than we. Envy not the condition the most proud and cruel adversaries of the church are experiencing. And then I thought Isaiah 5.20 is so important to hear. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Brothers and sisters, my friends, we need to be encouraged this morning when we are reminded that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. All that that means 
I submit to you that I've only barely scratched the surface on all the importance and implications of Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. And then we get to verse 14. Such an important verse. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Martin Luther, the great 16th century Protestant reformer, would often describe Christians with this phrase, at the same time just and a sinner. Simultaneously righteous and sinner. That's really what we see in verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The tense matters. Past tense is what's being used in perfected for all time. Because of Christ's once for all sacrifice, those who believe upon him are perfected, past tense. Meaning, you now can stand before God, no longer condemned and found guilty, but justified because of Christ's righteousness being imputed to you. You have been perfected. Your sins have been washed clean. You have been declared before the Father because of the Son, righteous. The Bible would refer to this theologians as an alien righteousness, meaning if you were to stand before God in your own righteousness, all that you have done from birth till now, you think maybe I'm good enough, you would be condemned. You fall so short of the glory of God, but because of the once and for all sacrifice of Christ, he has perfected you for all time. So that's past tense. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is happening right now for believers. This is called progressive sanctification. God, out of his grace, working in us, day in and day out, gradually progressing us more into the image of his son. We are becoming holy. God has set apart a people for himself and declared us righteous because of his son's righteousness. And him working in our lives, he is conforming us into the image of his, of his, of his son. That is the, the being sanctified. Now, there are theological systems that still, they, they still fail to understand the finished work of Christ. One example would be Roman Catholicism. What is done in the Mass, day by day, week by week, the body of Christ is, is being made and re-sacrificed, so to speak. They would say that your pre-baptism sins, those are covered. But everything that happens post-baptism, the work of Christ does not cover those sins, and so you must do things, penance. Our works then might might save us, but there is always this level of uncertainty, of assurance. What you do after really matters to your standing before God. This was the, the, the tyranny that Martin Luther lived under before understanding 
by God's grace, justification. He would believe he's so much more wicked than what any priest could tell him to go and do that he would add more to his penance. He would try harder and harder to to relieve the guilt, to, to, to remove the burden. And it wasn't until God's grace that he finally understood justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Here's the reality of what verse 14 is saying. You cannot add nor take away from what Jesus has accomplished. This is such good news. You cannot add and you cannot take away. He holds us fast. Praise be to God for this grace, this unmerited favor. And so our life is now a life of gratitude instead of merit because Christ by a single offering has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now to bring this to a close, I want to draw our attention to that quotation, the end of this passage, verses 16 through 18, where he goes again to Jeremiah 31. The Levitical system, remember, constantly reminded the Israelites of their sin. Their conscience would be, lay, would be weighed down by sin. There was this reminder, not only for the people, but a reminder to God of their sin. Now, the wonder of the new covenant, what is being emphasized here in this passage is that our sins will no longer be remembered by God. Their sins I will remember no more. Now, God doesn't gain knowledge. God doesn't lose knowledge. He neither, he neither learns nor forgets. He knows all things perfectly, instantly, comprehensively, now and forever. So when he says he won't remember our sins, this is what he means. If you are in Jesus Christ, God the Father is saying, I will never bring up your sin and use it against you to condemn you. I'll never take your sins into consideration when it comes to determining whether or not you will have entrance into my kingdom eternally. When he sees us, believers, please hear this. When God sees you, he sees his son. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is the, the glorious news of the new covenant. Remember, the repetition for, for all those in the old was a constant reminder of their sin. In the new covenant, think for example what, what the Lord Jesus instituted in the Lord's Supper. The constant reminder of sin in the old was guilt, guilt, guilt. When we come to this ordinance of the Lord's Supper, there was a repetition of sacrificial system happening. Here, once and for all, his blood was shed and so it's no longer this repetition of guilt, guilt, guilt. It is grace. This is what I have done fully and finally for my people. There is no longer any need for sacrifice of sins because I have sacrificed myself. And in the new covenant, God no longer remembers our sins. 
The Westminster Shorter Catechism starts with the question, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Here's a few questions. What is the single greatest and most imposing obstacle to your enjoyment of God? What is it that makes you hesitant to draw near to God and seek his help? What is the primary reason why you don't pray more than you do? Feelings of guilt and shame, I submit to you, pose the greatest threat of your joy in the Christian life. It undermines our intimacy with our Heavenly Father. When you have guilt and burden always on your mind, ever before you, your memory of moral failures of the past, the darkness of shame that accompanies those failures, if that's all that's with you as you're approaching God, it will hinder your glorifying him and enjoying him forever. That's why this is so important. Their sins I will remember no more. If we could just live in that reality instead of believing the lies that our guilt and our shame is ever before us, if you are in Christ, your sins have been washed away. You are forever perfected because of the work of the Son. Does that mean we will no longer sin? This is not Christian perfectionism. Of course, we continue to battle with the flesh. But our position is forever unaltered because we are fixed in Christ and Christ alone. We are justified by grace through faith in Christ. In the new covenant, because of the work of Christ, God remembers our sins no more. Let us pray. Father, may we this morning cling to these glorious promises to fully grasp the joy and privilege and grace and mercy to be invited into the new covenant, to see the once and for all sacrifice of your son and maybe for a lot of us in this room, we hear about Christ dying on the cross and, and it just maybe has lost the glory and the truth and the weight Help the reality of the old, of the repetition, and the finality of the new, the once and for all, land on our hearts and our minds anew this morning. And if there are any in this room who have been striving again and again to do and do and do to make their standing before you right, help them to see, give them eyes to see the kingdom of God. And when I say that, I want them to see what Christ the king has done in his person and work, what he has accomplished on the, the cross, in the resurrection, in the ascension, ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. Help us, we are so finite and fickle, to get a greater glimpse of your glory. This great plan of redemption that you have accomplished on our behalf. And may our response be praise and worship to the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.